0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We've made it to the last two weeks of summer, at least by the American real-life calendar of the sorta-seasons, so we here at The Man Podcast are on our annual end-of-summer break. On the Thursday after Labor Day, we'll be back with the first of what will be 12 straight all-new programs before Thanksgiving. Zounds. This week's show features one of my favorite interviews of the last year, my December 2018 conversation with Injideka Akineli-Crosby, It aired in January 2019 on the occasion of Akineli Crosby's exhibition at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Right now, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art in Washington, D.C. is showing Akineli Crosby in I Am Contemporary Women Artists of Africa. The show, which was curated by Karen E. Milbourne, is on view through March 15, 2020. In fact, several Past Man podcast guests are in the exhibition, including Ada Molinae and Wangeshi Mutu. Judecca Akineli-Crosby, after the break. Peter Paul Rubens is recognized as one of the most celebrated painters of all time, but his international acclaim was far from an assured outcome. Witness his rise to the highest ranks of European painters in Early Rubens on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Focusing on what is arguably Rubens' most innovative period of production from 1608 until about 1620, the exhibition showcases almost 50 works, including large-scale paintings never before seen in the U.S. Don't miss your chance to see early Rubens at the Legion of Honor before it closes on September 8th. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary Indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of Indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020 at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel*, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale, directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O. Naturel, the first American survey of one of the U.K.'s most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O. Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O. Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. Experience Sheila Hicks Sees Weave Space on view at the Nasher Sculpture Center through August 18th. This site-specific fiber installation of the American-born, Paris-based artist transforms the Nasher Sculpture Center and galleries with her use of supple and pliable materials. With a career spanning more than six decades, Hicks continues to push perceptions of art beyond traditional associations and uses fiber to create sculptures and objects that give material form to color. Learn more at NasherSculptureCenter.org. And we're back. Injadeka Akanili Crosby, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you, Tyler, for inviting me to your podcast.
0: You are part of the African diaspora to the United States. You grew up in Nigeria and came to the U.S. when you were 17. In an interview with Erica Ondo in Bomb Magazine, uh, which does great interviews and yours with her is one of the best I've read, you two talked about how how your studying African and Caribbean diaspora theory and literature was important to you. So you went on to become an artist and not a writer, of course. So what did you think that visual art might bring to conversations around diaspora that maybe a textual response couldn't?
1: Okay so when i decided to be an artist and i was studying post colonial theory i wanted to do something analogous to what the writers i had been studying were doing and what i felt visual art to bring could bring to it that was a little bit different was finding a different way to tell stories making the stories visual but also being in diaspora being someone who exists in diaspora comes with Being someone in diaspora means being someone who carries different heritages, different histories on you at the same time, and I wanted to explore how those could be made visible. As someone in diaspora, I carry different histories with me, which is very similar to what someone like Chinua Achebe has done in literature, writing as a nigerian american or writing about nigeria but putting it into this context of post-colonial writing
0: i mean one of the one of the you know it's it's kind of funny not only did you add american narratives into into your life but you added texan narratives into your life by marrying a texan and texas to americans is like a whole nother country
1: (laughs) yes i think oh what it is is like as a Nigerian living in the United States, I carry multiple histories with me. The, the the My history that has to do with having spent my formative years in Nigeria and the history that has to do with having lived in the United States for about 16 years at this point. So when I decided to do art, I wanted to see if I could take... I knew that there was something fascinating about the life I had lived and also being aware that it wasn't just about me, it was beyond me. There were more and more people living in this in-between space, between different cultures, between different countries, carrying multiple histories with them. And I, f- I was at a point where I felt like people are delving into this in literature, and post. A lot of literature coming out of formerly colonized spaces. But I wasn't seeing as many people doing it in art. So, wanting to tackle that. And then that set up a big challenge for me. If you want to tackle this, how do you do it visually? So, it's its own new and exciting thing, but it's also in conversation with what's happening on the literature side of things. So that was the first um, big challenge for me. But another thing where I felt um, the, the visual arts was exciting was my training at that point had all been in the United States, my painting training. So it was like, how do I tackle this carrying different histories with me, but actually do it using a type of painting that I got when I lived in the United States, especially at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts so it really is a training that came down through to me through a european lineage and how do i take ownership of this thing that i only acquired or inherited while living the second half of my life in the united states And so that was the beginning of my practice. It was how to put those two together.
0: I mean, was there a light bulb moment where you kind of suddenly began to realize how to do it while you were at PAFA or later at Yale, or was it more gradual?
1: It was more gradual. And so for for me, the light bulb moment wasn't, the light bulb moment didn't have to do with the formal aspects of the work. I think the light bulb moment really was tied with the themes and the work. So when I started grad school, I had, it's one of those things like when I look back on now, and it's very clear to me that I had an idea. I knew what I wanted the work to talk about. I just didn't have the tools to verbalize what I wanted to say. And every time I tried to talk about what I wanted to do, I felt very isolated. Like nobody understood what I was trying to do. People just had that blank look when I tried to explain it of I have no idea what this girl is talking about. And so I had a lot of self-doubt. And I think what happened When I started, I took a Caribbean diaspora class and when I started reading Juno Diaz and Marlon James and Edwin Danticat and people writing out of these hybrid spaces, the light bulb moment for me was that feeling that I wasn't alone and that what I wanted to do was worthwhile and was valid because here are people who are doing it in literature, and I'm these books are resonating with me and are absolutely making sense. And I, you know, there are certain moments when you read a book and it's, it's like coming home or finding kindred spirits, and it just strengthened my resolve. But it also encouraged me to keep pursuing, to stay on the path I was on. And then the other light bulb moment I had was when I took uh, an African literature class and we read Chinua Achebe. And I've read Chinua, I've been reading Achebe since I was a kid, and I've read him a lot and very often, but I had never read Achebe in a class in the United States. And so (laughs) during this one class, um, the, the Achebe book we read was Arrow of God, and it was so fascinating to me how different the conversation was from the conversations we had had of achebe when i was in my high school literature class and what really hit me was someone in the class made a comment about how they felt that they couldn't they they there were moments where they didn't feel they had entry into the text And that was such an eye-opening moment for me because the way I talk about Achebe to people, I always tell them when I read Achebe, I feel I'm back home. It really is. When people, when his characters speak, I hear my local language in my head. When he's describing places, I think of growing up in Enugu, I think of my summers in the village with my grandmother. It's so familiar to me. And so to hear someone say they felt pushed out or like they were outside looking in while reading him, I think that was the first time, that was a light bulb moment because it made me realize that there was something Achebe was doing, not just with the story he was telling, but things he was doing structurally with language that was beginning to create a split in his audience. So it was it, it was creating a dual audience and it was doing this thing where either the way he f- phrased the sentence either let you feel you were from within the space the sentence was being spoken from or you were outside looking into the space. And so I think once that really clicked for me, I really started trying to break his work down more to figure out all the other strategies he was using. I'm thinking like if I could figure those out, I could actually kind of like extrapolate from them, just like kind of lift it and you find a way to make an equivalent in my work because that was something I was interested in doing. Having moments in my work where someone, say, who grew up in eastern Nigeria will feel centered in the work and then having other moments where someone who, say, grew up in eastern Nigeria will feel that they... They are not looking at something that is familiar to them. And in that area, someone else, say someone who lived in Philadelphia, will feel centered in the work. So constantly shifting who is or isn't prioritized at each point in, in a painting.
0: No, it makes perfect sense because I have, as you're saying all that, on my screen, your 2017 painting, Dwell Aso Ebi, you'll have to please excuse my horrible Igbo accent, the the second two-thirds of the title translates in English to cozy days. Oh. Right? Really? That's what Google says.
1: I oh, know because it's not Igbo, it's Yoruba, and that gets interesting. We might talk, we might get to that later. Ah, we
0: sure might. Because <laughs> a lot of what you just described in, in the reading you enjoyed doing and then even more enjoyed redoing I think is, is in this painting that's, it's in Fort Worth at the moment. One of the things that you do in a lot of work that's really prominent in this painting is your use of framed pictures, pictures that you frame and place in the painting and have looking out at the viewer, not just the picture that's looking out at the viewer, but the people in the the frames are looking out at the viewer. Is that a, a good example of, of something you've taken or a device you've taken or a way you've translated literature in, in your work?
1: I had never thought of it that way, but now the question is in front of me, yes. Because what a lot of the writers I love do is that they create these moments that transport you to something. And it could just be something as simple as a phrase someone says in an Achebe book that is so familiar to people from a certain part of the country that, you know, really taps into the the variant of English we speak, that it transports you immediately. And so one of the words I have floating in my head in my studio is portals, which was ended up being the title for my solo show at Victoria Mirror Gallery, but just wanting these moments in my work that create portals between the viewer and certain places, the viewer and certain times, the viewers and certain cultures, and having those portals constantly shift. So I do think of the transferred pictures as kind of like mini portals, but the I also have these framed pictures within each work not all the time but lots of times that i think of more directly as portals and sometimes they are framed pictures sometimes they are things like posters album covers portrait cloth labels on an an, on an item on a table television screens
0: lots of television screens
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so that that's what those do. And I'm looking at an image of the Dweller Shebi and the two framed pictures in it. Well, there's the, the portals of my mother's portrait fabric. But then there's a photograph of my parents. And right below it to the right is a photograph of my husband, me with my husband. And that's one of those things I feel is such a thinking of the picture of my parents is such a time. There's a specificity of time to that where when I was younger, so probably from when I, my earliest memory, so what four or five years till when I was a teenager, that was the thing to do as a couple in terms of fashion, at least in Eastern Nigeria was to buy the same fabric and the, the husband makes an outfit, the wife makes an outfit. So when you go to church or when you go to a wedding or party or any kind of celebration, you match each other. And people call it to match. <laughs> so they'll say, oh, they're wearing to match. And um, so my parents did it a fair amount. So that's a, a a painting of my parents wearing their yellow with gold to match Sunday best The the subtitle for the piece, ashebi, is a Yoruba word that directly translates to family cloth. So ashebi is what you do when you take the same fabric and have members of a family or a close group of friends make outfits using the same fabric. So having the title as ashebi and thinking of my parents in ashebi and the picture of me with my husband on the floor we're wearing an that actually comes came from my, my sister's mother-in-law who is Ivorian. So thinking of that, but also how the portrait fabric of my mom at this point is a, seems like a family cloth to me, even though it was made for her political campaign. So there are all these tie-ins to cloth and family that made the title relevant. So for me, that has like a, a specificity of time, a specificity of Maybe to some extent, maybe even like socioeconomic class.
0: We'll have an image of Dwell on manpodcast.com. I got one or two other things about this painting I want to talk about. But one of the things that I can't stop noticing when I look at the painting is the way you use shadows. So there's a a, a figure on the left hand side of the painting who has her hand on a table and there's a a, a mug and a teapot on the table and the shadows for all of those things are exactly the same as the shadows in the portrait of your parents. As if there's a single light source illuminating all of them, as if your parents are less hanging in a portrait on a wall than if they're being lit up by the light source from somewhere off to the left of the painting. How intentional is your matching up all those shadows?
1: The, the Dwell I Should be was a piece that took me a long time to figure out the composition and the setting and how I wanted to situate the girl in the space. So early on in the drawing, I had just the girl and I didn't know the, the specifics or the exact details of what will happen around her. But there were a few things that were set in my mind. I knew that I wanted a big photograph in the space that was clearly a photograph, but also felt like the people could be existing in the room with the girl. And so a lot of it was trying to figure out how to plan the space to make that happen. Because the easiest way to do it would just have have it on the same plane as that of the paper, you know, straight just have it straight, horizontal, vertical orientation. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be a little bit of a tilted wall, but also not wanting it to be so tilted that the the painting on the wall or the photograph on the wall became so compressed that they didn't exist in the same space as the girl. And so, and so, I, now it doesn't even sound like such a complex problem. But there were other limitations. Like I knew I wanted that dark shape behind her, so that couldn't be the wall. And this was one that frustrated me so much. I ended up having to build. I I, I had to take a the day off from the studio, go down to Target, and buy like a little doll. Of a girl and sit her down. I like had a piece of wood and I cut out the chair and I sat her down on it and I used books and stuff to construct the room around her to figure it out. But with the shadow, with the shadows on the floor and on the image, I used it to extend that relationship. So I'm happy you saw it. I don't actually don't think anyone else has noticed it, but to have this feeling of they could be in the space or they could be in a room beyond that like a maroon frame so just I I like it when things do this um like this flip back and forth between stuff things are not fixed as something and sometimes there's a slippage that happens and I like the slippage that happens between the two figures being things that exist on a frame being a picture on a wall and Every once in a while, you just see them as standing in the room next door.
0: As soon as a viewer sees the shadows, you can't unsee them. They, they hold, you know, to the extent that shadows can hold a composition together. I guess that's I guess they can. They sure do here. And then you mentioned the window or at least the portal to to the outside behind the posed figure at the left. Which is a very weirdly angled window in a very Matisse way, and there's foliage outside also in a very Matisse way. Am I right in guessing that when it comes to windows to the outdoors and foliage?
1: Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just. And then going going back to the the shadows, I think I'm so happy you brought it up because this is also a piece where the it took a long time to figure out the shadows. So it's just one of those things you see and the shadows are there and you can overlook it as a viewer. But it was a lot of planning how to make it all fall in together. So same way I, I built the maquette for the girl, I had to like create a makeshift kettle. I got a pot from my house and created a fake handle and spout for it and had a mug to figure out exactly what the shadow of the kettle would look like so it ties into the... The shadow of the pink picture to make sense with the shadows on my parents on the wall, and with the girl, I was working with a photograph, so I couldn't really recreate it. But I, I my my husband is quite good with technical drawing, so the two of us worked it out where we had to imagine a light source and then do this like running threads from the light source to everything else to figure out how the shadow will fall. Anyway, long story. But it was a lot of work to create that cohesiveness to the shadows. And with the the space behind the girl, with, with certain pieces, there are things I'm latched in on. And sometimes I can't quite explain why that's important. I just know I want to do this. So I mentioned it, earlier in the interview, but I knew very early on in this piece, even before I figured out the space, that I wanted a dark shape behind her head. Because I I, I didn't want it to be about her portrait. And I thought a way I could negate that was having this passage between her head and whatever space was behind her. So I was trying to figure out how to create that dark space behind her. I toyed a bit with having it be another picture on a wall. Like, What could it be? Could it be a TV, a picture on a wall, a poster? And in the end, I ended up having it be, talking about slippage again, this thing that is a door or a window, but in some cases, especially when you look at the maroon edge, it actually flips into a wall. But in my head, it—it's a—I'll just tell you now, it's a door.
0: <laughs> yeah, or, or not a door, but
1: some kind of opening to the outside.
0: So, what about what about the way Matisse or Bernard, for that matter, put gardens and trees behind people sitting in their paintings? worked for you here yeah
1: so this is the other thing that was making me smile when you were asking the question which is that this show had started off at the baltimore museum of Art, and it was the space that i was assigned and the show ended up happening is right after you come out from the collection that has all the, um, the Cone collection, which has a lot of Matisse paintings, you walk into this space. And after the space where I was, you'd go into the more contemporary space. So it really ended up being a bridge between the two. And I was thinking of devising a show that did that a little bit that had elements from the cone collection but also had elements from their contemporary collection and kind of became this like bridge that took you from one to the other and so when i was looking at the the cone collection i was really taken by the matisses and he had a lot of objects on a table in rooms with striped walls so that's kind of there's a stripe motif that comes through a lot in these six works. But there were also a lot of, um, there were a few that had people in front of either wallpaper or openings that had a lot of flower plant motifs. So I was trying to quote that a little bit. And so with the plants, which shows up in the two dwells, I wanted this dark shape. I was thinking of the Matisse and I was also thinking a little bit of Chrysophily and this is something I've done a few times, but I absolutely love his blue paintings and just how sublime they are. It, it Having something in painting that, is and I don't even think I did it successfully but having those moments that are hard to photograph and you you have to see it in real life because it looks flat if you photograph it but when you see it in real life you realize there is a lot of richness and variety to an area that looks like it's just a flat blue area so I was trying to do this dark ultramarine this rich like ultramarine cobalt dark space but when you were in front of it in real life, there was actually a lovely variation between that midnight looking blue and the plants in front of it.
0: So I don't know when Chris Ophiele started his blue paintings, but you have made two monochrome-ish portraits, Janded from 2012 and for services, Victoria Regina from 2013. I think those are the only Two you've done it's something you adopted and moved away from pretty quickly, but I'm guessing those are about those Ophelis. Yes,
1: yeah, so that's actually that has been. I've been trying to do my ode to Chris Ophelia for a while, so that that came from that came from that, and I've actually done a third one, but I, it's not on my website because I, I keep thinking I I should work work rework it again. But with those is that same thing. I want to have this. Um, and those, I've not abandoned them. I, I I like doing the small portraits every once in a while. I actually wanted to see if I could make two for the Worth show. You know, I felt like if I could get, if I could put two more pieces in the show, I'll either like for them to be two planned pieces or two little portraits, but I didn't have time to add to the counterpart show because I felt like the portraits would be such a good addition to this um, body of work. But it's the same thing. I wanted. I like having those moments because I think they really push you as a painter. How can you create difference with the smallest separation? Like how, how can you make a painting of a head that is very clear and everything is where it should be, and everything is well articulated. But just the difference between the eyelid and the nose, and the... so if you think of, if you think of values uh, on a scale from one to ten, with ten being black black, and one being bright white, how can I work between an eight and a half and a ten, or even a nine and a ten? but have it say so much. So it's a challenge I like setting for myself every once in a while. But I I get frustrated because it's one of those things where fear takes over. So instead of working between a nine and a 10, I end up working between maybe a seven and a 10. So I keep going back to it because I keep I want to overcome my fear and push myself to keep closing the range because you paint something you like and you're worried and you don't want to darken it because what if you lose it and then you'd have to paint it again. And so I end up stopping and then I get frustrated with myself that I stopped. And then, you know, a year later, I think I'm going to try this again. (laughs) So with this painting, I wanted to try it again.
0: I think for enormously different reasons, Carrie James Marshall was interested in some of the same ideas very early in his career. I mean, and this was before Ophelia, of course, and and so it's interesting that some of the same painterly issues interest you, but for completely different, completely different reasons. One of the fun things across your oeuvre. I think this is true of a lot of painters. Is is the way they kind of hold on to things across many years of of paintings. One of one of yours, probably the most noticeable, we've referred to in passing, the portrait cloth of your mother's. Just to give listeners a quick bit of background, a portrait cloth is a textile featuring you know a design and then a portrait, a literal portrait of of a person. Your mother had one made for her Senate campaign, if I remember correctly and that's the one that ends up in your paintings quite often another thing that has recurred in a couple of your paintings is the dress that the woman in dwell is wearing
1: <laughs> yeah now I'm laughing because my husband recently told me you have to put that dress to It's like put it aside for a while <laughs> because I think it's like five maybe five or six pieces at this point she has that
0: same dress on <laughs> yeah so why
1: so you are right. There are certain things. I almost thinking of them as like my lexicon that I've developed over the years. So there's a portrait cloth. As of a couple years now, is the plants. Then there are the objects on the table, especially the tea objects. But with the the dress, I it's a it's very time consuming to do. But it's also. So this is the, I love patterns. And I've known since early on in my career that I wanted to work with patterns. But I like, I, I like patterns that that are not simple repeat patterns. That a little bit so I like I love patterns and I I, I you can see I, I always like slip patterns <laughs> into the work. But I've always I always knew that I wanted to um work with patterns in, in a slightly different way. I wanted to find patterns that were a little bit unconventional, a little bit more difficult to see where they repeat or how they repeat. And so this dress is one I love and I use a lot because it really satisfies that for me. It's a Vlisco fabric, which is, you know, the so-called African fabric that I've always known I wanted to incorporate into my work because in Nigeria, so it's just a big part of our fashion staple, but wanting to find a unique Vlisco pattern. And so I, I like that this does it, especially the big patch of blue in it ends up looking like stars in the sky. And it's I, I also it's very tricky to paint because it's it's hard to see how it repeats. So it's also quite challenging to draw. And I like that, which seems like such a weird thing to say. I I love that it's challenging to draw. I also, because of all the lines in it, I love how it gives the figure form. So I like having areas that flatten out. So what I like about it is that I can paint it fairly flat, but because of the lines of it, it begins to wrap around the figure, around the torso, over the knees. And so you do have this, talking about slippage again, this flatly painted part of the work that still has form because of the grade of the dress. So that, so for practical reasons, I like it for that. I love the, the color it brings to the work. It's just like a nice pop, but it's a, it's a pop that is a little bit constrained because of the big patches of blue in it. So the parts that are yellow, it, it's a For those who can see this as I'm talking, it's a predominantly yellow and blue dress, but there are big blue patches in it. So you do see the yellow, but the yellow is almost like a river that meanders through the dress and creates really nice abstract shapes to the body. So I like the way it breaks down the body when the figure has it on. And in terms of the story behind it, I love using this dress because it's... It's from a a Nigerian designer, Tiffany Amber, who is very successful. Her clothes are quite expensive. So going again to audience and specificity and what people can pick up. If you're someone who is up on Nigerian fashion and you recognize this as a Tiffany Amber dress, then that is that says something different to you than that, that brings something different to the narrative. If, if you understand who Tiffany Amber is and who who gets to wear Tiffany Amber.
0: And in an art world context, it's tempting to read it as a reference to Yinka Shanabare, who's a British Nigerian artist. I presume that's intentional
1: it's intentional so when i talked earlier of about being earlier on about being interested in vlisco for me a big part of the connection is one it's such a big part of your fashion mind or fashion life if you grew up in nigeria because you know my mom wore vlisco almost every day the last 15 years of her life but also thinking of the connection to yinka shonibare who's done incredible work that really is centered on Vlisco and the history and what it means for people coming from various African countries. So it really is tied those two things to me. And that's why I always wanted to work with Vlisco. But feeling like Yinka Shonibari has, you know, it's like he said so much about this. How can I say more in a new way? Or how can I find a different way to talk about Vlisco and what it means to me?
0: We've gotten this far without my asking you about your use of Xerox transfer which in addition to acrylic makes up the surface of of many of your works. First real quick what is Xerox transfer?
1: So the Xerox transfers is a technique I had learned in a printmaking class at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. I learned it maybe 4 years before I even knew I ever wanted to incorporate it into my work. So I print out, I print out pictures on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And the pictures are quite small, like postcard size, give or take a few centimeters. And I put those face down on my paper, on my artwork, and I use acetone to transfer it. So, what it is is that the printer I use uses pigment, dry pigment, but the dry pigment is adhered to the paper using some kind of plastic solution. Acetone melts plastic, which is what we use to take off nail polish, which is acrylic. So if I make a print or if I print out a photo, if I print out an image and I put that print face down on my work paper. And if I rub acetone behind that printout, the acetone dissolves the plastic holding the pigment together. And if I really press down as I'm rubbing the acetone on it, the the released pigment gets pushed into my paper and my paper absorbs it. So when I take off the stuff I printed, there is a transfer on my work paper. So that's what it is. But I like it. I prefer it to collage because you get you don't get all the pigments. You probably get thirty-five percent of the ink to transfer. So there is an abraded quality to it. And there's this there's this look of details that are lost in transfer. And I, I like I love all the connotations that brings.
0: So I've heard you talk about your, not just your use of the technique but also the way it looks on, on a surface in the context of Wangeshi Mutu and Robert Rauschenberg. Has Romare Bearden also been of interest?
1: He has been of interest but not with the surface. I think when I look at Romare what he's really done for me and the inf- influence he's had on me is he's someone that I, I, I love the way he takes a lot of, he's able to make these compositions that seem like they have a lot of visual noise but he holds it together and it doesn't break down so it's taking something that you feel should just be this cacophony of colors and shapes and edges um, and just there's this beautiful symphony that comes of it and so when I look at him I'm I'm trying to figure out the how he does that like how is he able to keep this control over this? What are the decisions he's making that lets him bring so many different elements, not just like collage and painting and drawing, but really intense colors. I may not think of being on the same thing, but everything is still held together with such sophistication. And so when I find myself struggling with that, when I feel the work is just breaking down into too much noise and things are not cohering or just things that don't have a, a a good overarching structure to it I look at Romero
0: too. You know what's interesting about that answer is that the kind of that much of the space, not all of it, that that doesn't feature Xerox transfer is broad flat color, monotone color. I'm not describing it very well, but you know, you have you have the part of the painting that's Xerox transfer, you and then you have a part of the painting, you know, maybe an eighth or maybe a seventh of the painting that's that's a single color of green. And I'm guessing you really like the contrast between the the broad flat color and the density of images within the Xerox transfer parts of the painting.
1: Yes. So they are different there are a, a number of pairs of words that I constantly have playing in my head when I make pieces because I keep thinking, I like dualities. and playing up with that. and so one of the things I keep thinking of, so one of them is inside-outside. So we talked of how I sometimes have these portals that lead to the outside world or bring architectural elements of an outside space, like screen walls, into an interior space. But a big one I keep thinking of is Quiet and noise. So, I do think of the, the transfers as visual noise because if you get a chance to look at the work, it's a lot of vibration where the transfers are. It's a lot of information and colors and just like a, a visual vibration. And I feel like a, a good way, and Romer does this, a good way to balance that or counter it is to have areas that are very quiet and the flat color areas help me do that so that's one thing they do but I also love how having those flat areas allows me to quote different ways or like different types of painting or different ways of image making where in in the flat areas they make me think of mechanical production because lots of times I tape them off and use rollers to paint it. So it makes me think of things like silkscreen printing, a pop vernacular. Sometimes when it's more geometric, I I think of geometric abstraction. So having moments that allow me quote painting styles that I might not necessarily be working from.
0: We've talked about the plants in your paintings a couple of times without Kind of directly talking about them. There, there's that one in the background of of one of the dwell paintings, and there's a 2016 painting called Grandmother's Parlor, that might be a, a fun way of talking about some plants. Plants are probably about half that painting. Why are plants in? I mean, you're you obviously have fun constructing them. They are visually rich and dense, and they're dense forward to backward. They're dense left to right. Given that you're somebody who who has spent a lot of time painting painting interiors, what about plants made visible through a window interests you?
1: So with the plants, I I only got interested in plants when I moved to Los Angeles. The nice thing about, I've been that person who I've killed every plant I've had, including cactus. I just, people say, you can't kill this. And then I Show them how easy it is to do that. But then when we got to LA, I got a, a, like a house plant, first time in my life. And just, we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but plants, gardens and planting seem like a big part of Los Angeles culture. Just I've been so taken by the variety in plants I've seen. I mean, sometimes I'm driving, I feel like I should stop the car and go ask someone what the plants in their garden is. There are plants I've seen here that I've never seen in my life ever. Like, But they're like really weird desert plants that are absolutely stunning and drought tolerant. So I've just had this new fascination with plants. No, but um, what what the plants do for me, Same as a lot of other things, uh, multiple, I'm going to try and remember at least two or as many as I can. The first is that sometimes I worry that my work, just there's so much planning that goes into it that I worry that it, it, it can get quite rigid or very linear. And I, 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 I keep trying to find ways to break that a little bit. And the plans do that for me because they they are very complex and they move in odd ways and they break the space in ways that are different from how I tend to break space not by nature. My nature is very angles and straight lines. Um, So it just lets me step out of my comfort zone, Um, number one. But in terms of the themes of the work. I have loved working with plants because what I've realized is that there's so much specificity to plants. And I keep, I keep coming back to specificity, how a, a plant like a cassava for me, when I see a cassava plant, it doesn't just make me think of home like Nigeria. It makes me think even more specific. It makes me think of Eastern Nigeria and even more specifically to the rural parts of Eastern Nigeria, because that's where you find cassava. And I keep thinking when I was young, I always, we used to drive from Enugu, where I was born and grew up, to Agulum, my eternal village, some weekends and during big holidays. And it was about a one and a half, two hour journey. And I always knew we were close to the village once I started seeing cassava farms, because the root of cassava is a big part of the village um dietary staple. Um so thinking of plants that way, like what does it mean to see a plant like a cassava outside a window in Los Angeles? This who I've I've never seen this plants outside nigeria even outside the village so what's the specificity of what are plants that have specificity and what are plants that don't have specificity because they 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 they've become naturalized in so many places but also thinking of how plants were such a such a good way to map global movements and how people have moved around the globe because when people move they tend to move with their plants and animals. And so I've really been trying to enjoy doing the research part of what are plants that are come from Nigeria but haven't left the country? And what are plants that have um, migrated to other places? What are the plants I seen in LA and what are their origins? And really thinking of having the conversation I've always been interested in about migration and displacement and moving from one place to the other, either by choice or not, but using plants to look at that.
0: That's interesting you mentioned cassava because the plant visible through the window, air quotes around window, in grandmother's parlor is the exact plant in a painting from the previous year, 2015, Cassava Garden. And one of the things you do in that plant or in those plants is there's a figure of a man wearing sunglasses who is... And I know this isn't what you're doing. I'm just trying to describe what it looks like visually, you know, as if the man is superimposed on one of the leaves of the plant. Who is he and why does he surface in both artworks?
1: Oh, yeah, I've put him in a few works because I like that picture. (laughs) But there's sometimes there are things that in the work that just have to do with my personal, like things that are close to me that no one else might ever know, but that's fine. So a little bit of a backstory. There was this magazine called Arise, That was absolutely phenomenal. It was this lifestyle magazine for the continent, and it had everything from what's going on with fashion, music, movies, art, design. Architecture, any kind of creative field, um, but also people doing philosophy. I'm not, sorry, like, please edit that out. People doing um, <laughs> <laughs> oh god, now no, I'm blanking out on what I wanted. Not not philanthropy. Um, it's fine, I can't remember. But just like all the interesting things happening on the continent, we're covered in this magazine called Arise. And so that photograph is from. One of the Arise issues that I have, but sadly went out of business some years ago. But there's this one issue where someone had gone to the beach in Ghana, in Accra, and took pictures of just normal people out on the beach on a Sunday. You know, if the photographer thought you were fashionable or had like a, a really cool street style, he took a picture of you. So the picture of that man was in it and... I really love the picture. I love the pattern on his on his dress. His fabric is palm wine, which is just a big part of when I go to the village in my mind, in the guard, in the brown guard. So I love that he has a palm wine shirt. I love that he, the way he's looking off into the distance. And just certain pictures transfer well because of the color contrast. Um, that's a photograph that transfers really well and i use it because i realize i don't really have a lot of pictures of men in my work because so many of my pictures are me, my sisters, my friends. i went to an all girls high school so that that's one of the few Pictures of men in trads that has a really good quality that I own, so I've I've used it in a couple of the plant pieces. But in in the plant pieces I've used it in, usually with the plant pieces I end up needing two photographs to fill in the whole plant. So it's usually the man and a picture of a woman. The woman constantly changes. So at some point it's been my sister, at some point it's been um, a picture from a Vlisco ad. Uh, Vlisco did a catalog of their iconic designs uh, that has some really beautiful pictures, and I've used two from those for the plants. But the man stays constant.
0: Another thing that's in a lot of your paintings is tabletops. And as part of that, there are also a lot of still lifes on those tabletops, what we might call, you know, in in art historical speak anyway, still lifes. So, I want to ask you why so many tabletops, but I ask you knowing that the answer may be that they're just there because the still because they're because it's the still lifes that are important, yes, <laughs> okay, so then why are the still lifes important you
1: know, i was I mentioned earlier when I kind of quickly listed the lexicon. I mentioned objects on a table, and I think with the the with the works, I feel like there's a lot I want to cram into each work or uh, Sometimes I actually start pieces and I have a list next to it of just, like, all the things I want to touch upon. And sometimes at the end of the piece, i realize out of my list of seven, I maybe touched upon four, which is, like, good stats for me. Um, So I think usually the tables just let me cram more things in because objects carry so much weight. There's this quote by... um a South African theorist that was talking about objects and the way it was described was so beautiful. And it was one of those things I saw and I thought like, yes, this totally makes sense. This is why I love working with objects. So the book is, her name is Brenda Cooper, and it's a new generation of African writers, migration, material, culture, and language. And so Brendan Cooper is talking about trivia when African writers write and how they focus on objects sometimes, like describing little objects. And then she wrote The massive weight of little events, small solid possessions, and apparently insignificant happenings are what embed one in one's time and place. A visit to the supermarket, the bus ride to work, the tea break, the preparation of meals, the list is infinite and the details may be minute. And yet, this is the fabric that comprises social lives and identities. The dailiness of life becomes part of new realities, invested with past experiences, remembered from other places, spaces, landscapes, and climates. And so the objects do the same thing for me. I just feel like objects carry so much of that kind of weight that they let me add those to to the piece. So if we want to jump to another piece from the Fort Worth show, the, I call it the Michael Jackson piece, which is Dreams of Jan. So thinking of the objects on the table, and for those who haven't had a chance to see this yet, it's uh, lime green, yeah. a pale lime, there's a pale lime green table with a tray set out for tea in it. And I love that with all the objects on the table the still life i can actually begin to have this narrative of something like tea culture which is a big part of nigerian life but is actually something that came to nigeria from when we used to be a british colony and so i i feel like in this so far in this podcast i've talked a lot about being nigerian and american but even before i left nigeria there is this complex space that exists in the country, because Nigeria used to be a British colony, and even though we've been independent since 1960, so long before I was born. But there, you can look around and see that there and see things around you that are vestiges of when we used to be a British colony. But what fascinates me is how those things did not stay stagnant. They actually morphed and changed with time to the point that they've become unique. So if you want to tie this back to what I was saying about Achebe, it's almost like at this point we have our own variant of tea. And I love speaking to that with the objects on the table. So you have this trade I set out for tea that most people can recognize as tea, I hope. But if you're not from the space this came out from, you do have that feeling of, I kind of have a general idea of what's happening, but I'm not quite sure. Like what is this blue box? And what is this peak thing that is on the table? Whereas someone from a space that does tea this way is just going to have that spontaneous resonance of, oh my God, St. Louis sugar. We had this every morning and peak milk. This is, you know, these are just like things that were such a big part of my life for a long time. So having the the plate on the table, that is British porcelain. So just speaking to our history with Britain again, there's a mug on the table that has an image of Cardinal Arinze, who is a family friend of ours, but also thinking of the influence of religion, not especially in Eastern Nigeria, where I grew up. A a, a lot of people of my parents' generation were educated in missionary schools. That's That's how English and a lot of British culture came to Eastern Nigeria, was through missionaries, and how that has really become interwoven into the fabric of that part of the country. And looking at the the doll on the table, there's a little plastic blue and white doll that speaks to col- post-colonial commerce. And so the objects on the table let me do that. If, if you look at dwell, me, we. I have a, a La Monaca cup, cup of coffee on the table. Uh, in Nigeria, we don't really drink coffee. And La Monaca, in my mind, is such an LA thing. So that's an object I felt putting it on the table placed the work, not just in the United States, but in Los Angeles for me. So those are what objects on the table let me do. They just k- kind of like expand the places where I can put more information and create more openings to things.
0: Two more things. Your 2016 painting, Facets Screen Wall, um, is kind of an anomaly within the oeuvre. It's it's using something that was kind of an architectural standard or trend a couple decades ago in Nigeria, something built into a lot of houses, and turning it into a formalism, a, a very formal painting. So, what I'm wondering about that painting is why did that appeal to you, and and why did you leave it alone? Why did it only become a one painting thing?
1: Every once in a while, I I, I have uh, like this idea that wouldn't let go, and you know it's not quite clear or solid. With painting, sometimes you just have a vague idea, and you just have to try it, and it might take second or third or fourth time for you to really grasp where this is going or what it wants to be. And facet screen wall for me is that, which is a lot of how I build the lexicon. Like the first time I did the plans, the plans were just a little part in a room that had a triptych. And then I did it somewhere else where, I think, I think Grandmother's palace where it was in the window. When I, something like that happens a few times, I feel if I'm interested in this image or in the iconography of plants, I should just explore that and see how I can expand on it. And then once I feel I've expanded on it, I can incorporate it back into a more complex space. Same with the objects on the table. The first time I did the objects on the table, it was um, it was a party. It was a, a and uh, a work that was the work was I think five Umayzabi Street or seven Umayzabi Street. It was a yellow piece that was based off a party I would have attended as a child, and the image is set in the living room, but behind some of the figures, very small. You can see the dining table, and it has a few tea things you can have you can see on the dining table. And I was very fascinated by that. And I thought I should just make a piece that is just the tea table. And I think since then I've made two or three pieces that are just tea things set out. And so the screen wall has been that for me. It keeps popping up in works in the background, kind of creeping the side. So I I feel like I want to exploit on its own and see how I can take this motif and make it even more complex and make, take it to places I've not thought of. So then when I bring it back into a work, it helps. I, I keep wanting to find ways to expand, expand my, my work and expand my work. And this is how I do it. Every once in a while, I like, switching gears in the work. So we talked about the the dark portraits earlier on. That was a gear shift for me because it, it is quite exhausting to make the big multi and very complex composition pieces. And so sometimes I think instead of trying to make this work that says A, B, C, D, E, can I make a smaller piece that just talks about C? and see or like d and see what i can do with it um so that was what i did with facets can i make something that is quiet and hits a different note from everything else i've done it still tackles the same themes but it's a more quiet version just so there's range to what i'm doing So I was thinking of making a piece that is just a screen wall. And that screen wall actually comes from another piece I had done. It's a diptych called Garden Thriving. And I really loved the shape of the screen wall in there. So I was thinking of making this very simplified piece that had this screen wall, but had an image behind the screen wall that went at a different angle that was a family portrait. But what I ended up liking about that piece is I liked this. There's like a flip between things that are flat, and then they flip back into space. And I loved how the face of the screen wall and the... You know, there's a photograph you can see behind the screen wall that shows you that there is a wall behind it that goes at a different angle. So I love that flip from a flat wall to like a wall going into the work. And there's something something about that that I keep thinking, I want to come back to this. There's something here that sparked my interest and I don't think I've taken it to where it can be. So that's what that was for me. It's like the, the beginning of not a new idea, but the beginning of a new way of exploring the space within the screen walls.
0: Finally, you know, you, you said a moment ago that facets screen wall, you know, you referred to it as kind of a small experiment, but it's five by four and a half feet and, and you work at very large scale. I mean, you know not not to kid, not to tease, but you know for you, twenty square feet is is modest not 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 that you should have to apologize for working at scale, but something about scale obviously appeals to you, and so the question is what?
1: So one, it lets me pack a lot into the work, <laughs> and I was telling you my problem is like scaling down, I'm trying to put everything in the work, and I constantly have to remind myself like think of things as a book and each painting might just be a chapter or a few pages. You don't have to put the whole book in one. And then that way it lets me let go of things and feel like, okay, if I didn't touch upon on some X in this, I could come back to it in the next piece. So that's number one. But also what the big pieces let me do is it has to do with the the relationship I want between the viewer and the work. I am very happy when people see the work in real life. There's so much that is lost when you see it on a screen on a small scale because the way I plan it and design it and really make every decision has to do with your relationship with the work as you stand in front of it and it expands beyond you're you know like kind of expanding into your peripheral vision, and so what the large scale lets me do is that i i i want to make this works that are you know depicting this in between space in multiple ways, like in between Nigeria and here in between past and present, in between noise and. Quiet in between, inside and outside, and all these other things, text and non-text. And instead, I want to create the the pieces in such a way that when the viewer is in front of it, they actually become active in in making everything activated. And as you're moving, you're actually being made to make these jumps that I'm imp- interested in. You're making jumps in place. You're making jumps in time. You're making jumps in culture. You're making jumps in socioeconomic class. You're making jumps in languages of image making. You're making jumps in languages of painting. So I love that when you're, you know, like right now, and I'm looking at a a photograph of home as you see me. So I love that you can say, start in the middle And you're looking at a collaged fabric from when my mom ran for senator in eastern Nigeria. And of course, portrait fabrics have a really rich history that I can talk about in a second. But just the texture of fabric compared to paint is very different. There's like a nice soft velvet to it. And then if you move a little bit to the right, you run into this chopped up picture of The Sacred Heart of Jesus. And it's one of those things like it's chopped up enough that if you had that growing up, it's like, oh, my God, every house in eastern Nigeria had this picture. So it really takes you back to a a specific time and place in the country. And then you come down and you're looking at those crochet doilies that were in a house in the village And then you come down a bit and you're looking at these painted velvet chairs that were from my dad's house in the village. And then you move to the right a little bit, and you're looking at these blue curtains that are actually based off of like a JCPenney or something like that catalog. So the, the curtain is based off of that at the bottom. The top is based, the top of the curtain is based off of the a uh, house we had in in Enugu in eastern Nigeria. But also the way the curtain is constructed is very it it's it doesn't look like a real curtain. I just kind of took the 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 scheme of how curtains work, and then I painted it. So it's actually painted in a very mechanical way. It's almost like formulaic. Mid-blue, like dark blue, mid-blue, light blue. Mid-blue, dark blue, dark band. Dark blue, mid-blue, light blue. So it's very like like a computer. It's like a computer-painted curtain. And then you move a little bit, and you're looking at photographs from Nigeria from a certain, like, from my first Holy Communion in the mid nineties. And then you move up a little bit. This is now on top of the painting of the guy with the uniform. And you're looking at pictures from 1956, from when the queen came to Nigeria and there are these school kids waiting to see her. And you move a little bit to the right and you're looking at A photograph of tea that is set out in our house in Enugu. And then you move to the top a bit and you see this Nigerian family wearing ashebi. They're all wearing blue and they're wearing traditionals, but the men are wearing hats, which is one of those like leftover things we had from when we, from being a British colony. And they're posing with a Nigerian lawyer who is wearing the white. Which we do because one of the leftover things we have and you move to the right a bit and there's a picture from when the Chibok girls were kidnapped and the mothers are crying. So there's this like constant jump that I really want to put the viewer in. So Your your eyes are always recalibrating in terms of the surface and how the surface is made. When is it painted versus printed versus collage versus fabric? But even when it's painted, the way it is painted, when is it rolled on versus like put on thickly with paint versus made with multiple really, really thin layers of transparencies. So there's this constant readjustment that's happening optically. And I think having a big work really lets me create this cinematic landscape for the viewer
0: to travel through. That, that painting is uh, seven feet by seven feet. Injadeka Akaneely Crosby, thanks so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Tyler. This has been fun.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.